In Zechariah chapter 9, and in particular the ninth verse, this is what was foretold. Now, some of you know that books can be numerated or chronologically accounted for us to the when in advance of the now. And so as Jesus in this particular account on Palm Sunday is coming into Jerusalem, frequenting it throughout his ministry, but in particular satisfying the requirements of prophecy. Zechariah is about 500 years in advance of the event that we're going to be looking into. The reason that that's important is because when we look back and see with precision that which was foretold, you were able to have a confident and assured understanding that whatever God says to you, whatever he says, and in particular about the future is true, you do not need to doubt it. The enemy wants you to disbelieve it. He wants you to operate on feelings, on fear, on impatience, doubts, disbelief, bones to pick. He is an adversary of the work of God and the word of God. So when we come here and we're able to have a scholastic and historical anchor point, this is classic. should be noted that you can always go back to Zechariah 9.9 and give somebody an historical account of what the Gospels teach us Jesus actually fulfilled on that day. Daniel mysteriously also, in numeration that has been accounted for, gives us an understanding of when Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. So these things are important because as we look to the Lord, as we find ourselves really impressed by the precise and accurate determination of God's will, and as we look towards Israel, everything right now is in perfect order, even when we as a culture feel very disordered and perhaps without unity. It hasn't nor should it affect the church. We're a bastion of stability. Even though the church has informality taken, in my opinion, a huge hit in this past year, the Lord looks at it as a stability and as a light, as salt, and we have a good place to be. So that's important. Let's read what this says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it continues on, relevant, but at the same time, looking back as well as looking forward to events that we don't need to get into. The important part is what so accurately has been foretold right now. We understand that there is going to be, though not spoken of specifically as Jesus, this event is going to happen. So 500 years to the time that Jesus came in, or I would say birthed, to presently, which is where we enter into his 33rd year of life, he satisfied it completely according to the faithful word of God. To the degree that these animals have been listed also will be satisfied in the gospel account. So now what we're going to do is go to the gospel of Mark. The reason that I want to go there to visit it is to set the tone of what Jesus would have been experiencing prior to moving into Jerusalem and what the disciples were beginning to feel as well. So Mark chapter 10 is where we'll go.
And we'll pick it up at verse 32 to give you an idea of what was on the Lord's heart and what the heart of his disciples were feeling. In chapter 10, verse 32, as you can see the subscript, Jesus is predicting his death and his resurrection. It's the third time that he's done so. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going there before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Isn't that interesting? They almost seem to be terms of conflict. Amazed and afraid. So let's figure out the amazing part of it. First of all, they're with Jesus. He was amazing. But that's probably not the precise meaning of that. They're amazed at the courage of the Lord because they have lived a life having been firsthand witnesses of the terrible treatment that he had received from the time of his ministry. They had been a part of the challenges, the sneers, multiplied thousands of individuals who had followed him from afar, come in close, left him when they did not fully understand what he was meaning by something as simple as identifying himself as bread that came from heaven, blood that was true drink. On account of even those statements, they would no longer follow him. He lived a life that nomadic had precise allocation of where he would be. In other words, he knew what he was to be doing on the day-to-day. -day. You and I have challenges with that. That's why we have calendars and smartphones, because we're not as precise. But the disciples here, as they are following him, are now coming to terms with some of the things that they have heard. And most importantly, what they see in him now is a tenacity to go forward into a place that has shown him threats from the chief magistrates, from those a part of what you would say the spiritual congress was, the Sanhedrin, the death threats that they knew and had heard voiced towards Jesus. So they're amazed at him, for sure. They're amazed at his tenacity and courage, specifically. We have a savior that moved in the face of what others would say justified fear. Fear can do many things to us, provoke us to cower, provoke us to defense. Some of those can be reactionary and they can be appropriate to saving us. But when we talk about what Jesus literally went through, it was not simply an idle threat. It was a conspiracy to kill him. And therefore they are amazed that he would do such a thing. When they also knew that he took great precaution not to go in advance of the specific time that his father had commissioned him to be the sacrifice, the holy lamb of God. John would address at the baptism, behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But that had to be satisfied ultimately in what he now is tenaciously doing, moving forward, fearlessly, but not without emotion. Just because you behave fearlessly does not mean that you do not have feelings. It's actually one of the defining terms of heroism, that under great peril and stress, you look fear in the face. You face off with it. But it is not absent of feelings. Feelings help us to calculate Cost. They help us to strategize and implement a plan to satisfy it. 
some of the greatest heroes that we reflect on are those who have been warriors for our nation. And as I was the other week listening to my twin brother describe military terminology in ground warfare campaigns and how those were incorporated when he was in Iraq, it was over my head, but I realized that he was over his head there. And as we talked about the Lord in the face of fear, we both agreed it was all about God giving us an assurance and a plan that whether win or loss, live or die, there was a mission to satisfy. And I only get to see snippets of what Rob actually went through, through photographs. But I saw him in camis and flak jacket, armed to the teeth and leading hundreds of men. And that life was not easy. I break there to say the life of the disciples with Jesus was not an easy life. They were with him, but they suffered alongside of him. But they did not suffer to the full measure that leadership requires. And Jesus was a leader who suffered to the full measurement of what leadership requires. God leading men. That's one of the premises of understanding how much this means in the context of Palm Sunday. It wasn't simply a flowery occasion of celebration. There was activity that was leading a mass of people to Jerusalem that we understand entail at least three feasts that were operating precisely on the days that they were appointed in the scriptures and according to weeks that would be bumped next to each other. And when we see how they were laid out, we can see how ultimately in what Jesus would do, which was to lay his life down and upon a cross, they all spoke of him. They all spoke of him. So we go back now simply to take a look at the remaining verse here to understand what he now pulls them in to be girded up in truth. He took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen. Military mindset, letting your men know that the battle is fierce. The enemy is fearsome, but this is the plan that's going to happen. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. What do you think they heard primarily as opposed to what they should have heard, hopefully? They heard, we're going into a losing battle. We lose our leader. We may lose our lives. Is this the strategy that we follow? Lord, really? But the most important part of what has been said is this. And the third day he will rise again. When Jesus speaks in what would be third person, it is not to distinguish that it's separate from his first person. He at times will do that because he's occupying two positions as one son of man and son of God. And he's emphasizing, I'm the son of God. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm not a mere man. I'm a man you're following who is the son of God. Him you will see rise on the third day. So Palm Sunday is to bring us closer to the cross, which takes us to the grave and translates all of us into heaven 
according to this word. Was there celebration going on? Indeed, there was a massive celebration. It would make spring break blush, but in an entirely different way. For this was a spiritual celebration. When we look at what spring break means, it's a carnal celebration. Very different. The city would have been enlivened to obediently follow the prescriptions of the feasts. And though they are blind to what they represent, their eyes are going to be opened to the person that it all was about, Jesus. Such a cool picture here. We move from this to Matthew 21. I have to go back just a little bit. And I want you to pick it up there pretty much right at the beginning. So here's what this says concerning this event. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So from where they were at, they've now made the pilgrimage up to the pinnacle bedroom community of Bethphage and Bethany. Remember last week, David is moving from Jerusalem up the Kidron through the Mount of Olives to the pinnacle where he is insulted and assaulted. Jesus moves from the pinnacle of the region, which will be Bethphage and Bethany, to come down that mountain that David went up to cross over the Kidron to enter into the city. One leaves despairing of being rejected. One enters with the hope of being received. David leaves knowing he has been rejected. Jesus comes hoping that he will be received. Was he caught off guard? Was he surprised? Nope, he's God. There was nothing that took him by surprise. Quite the contrary, he surprised many by his willingness to take them. Even adversity that was calculated to be upon him, he was willing to take anybody for the purpose of bringing them into the fold. Great picture. But the men right now are on assignment, at least two of them that we see. And here's why this is important, it's preparation. It's preparation for the revelation of Jesus to the city of God, to the city of David. This is his city. It will be from where he reigns. Talk about the irony. It's difficult for me as one having visited there, walked, <laughs> walking a lot in Jerusalem and the outer regions to imagine that Soon and very soon, that will be a hub of all humanity to come and to worship the king and then be dispatched throughout to the four corners of the earth to tend the things of God on earth for a thousand years. Difficult for me to see it, but I saw it. And I know that even what I saw was only a shadow of what will be. It will be under new construction and new management. And it will be awesome. And there will be nothing to do but to enjoy perfection on earth once again. So the disciples right now are on assignment. We're on assignment too. We're to be in the preparatory work of being dispatched by God for his triumphal entry into the lives of people who are distracted by celebrations and politics, cultural abnormalities that at one time were taught in school as norms and morals. 
And I'm not saying that even with education that I'm able to cite as a teacher, I had that I could fully get a grasp on culture where we're at. I do believe that we're in repetitive cycles. We just dress differently than 40, 50 years ago. But the theme of rebellion and the themes of rejecting God have really been on display just in different attire from the time that man rebelled against God. And therefore, it's important to realize that as the dispatch of these two was to accomplish a very important statement of God to triumphantly enter into the place that was purposed symbolically to show him, to reveal the things of God and to court the hearts of the people and to give them spiritual opportunity to be something bigger than what the Romans treated them as, what the Sanhedrin lawfully fatigued them in, they're dispatched to. Two's a great number. It is a number that institutes a walk of being in agreement. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? We are to be an assembly of people that are in agreement with the scriptures. The scriptures are not to be changed by us. We're to be changed by the scriptures. Two by two, the animals entered into the ark. It shows a union. There's a unity when you look at congregations of what God has done remarkably. And two by two, indicating someone with you in strength has an assignment of dispatch to prepare the way of the Lord. And you do that by a smile that no one else can forge. Authentically, you can. The eyes that actually tear up talking about Jesus. The sure word of God in which promises have been memorized and in which you were able to convey, this is for you. Have you ever shared that with someone? This word that I'm reading is for you. And do you know that people want to hear a sure word from a sure source that isn't fake? It isn't a talking point of politics. They want to because their spirit craves for something that they're not getting. You get it here. They're dispatched to satisfy a requirement. You are dispatched to satisfy a requirement. And it's not seeing how many people you can thump with your Bible or scream at concerning end times. It's how many you can convey the love of God to in what we would say the ordinary living situation you're in. Life has a very organic, predictable rising and closing, resting and working. And in that day, 12 or 24 hours, however you want to calculate it, every day can be a day in which somebody sees a difference that they do not have. They want it. But you're able to tell them in the circumstance that you have been through, maybe are going or shall go through. I've seen the Lord faithful throughout all the years of my wanderings. And in the pilgrimage to the house of God, he meets me every time. The dispatch is practical, but it's also spiritual for us to understand, preparatory for a great occasion he says to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. It's fascinating because in the other two accounts, it seems to be presented singularly, and we can look at that, but it's plural right now. There's a mom. Her foal means a baby. Colt means a male, young donkey. That means it had to be somewhere under four years of age. Jesus entered in at approximately 30 years for ministry. This is at about now the 33rd year of his life. And it's kind of interesting that very likely even this young colt, this baby donkey, whose mother 
has nurtured him since the time forward. Very interesting. Somewhere under the age of four, with its mother, reserved for this special occasion, it is a picture. It could be even a Mother's Day picture. Thanks for hanging out with your foals, for doing what you do, the fillies and the colts. Moving into a different equestrian term, but the unity here is being pictured. The two going out, two being found, bring them. And they don't argue. What? Bring them? That, isn't, that doesn't make any sense. And by the way, when you consider what a young male donkey would be like, they've already got a disposition of stubbornness. You want to probably say, what were they doing casting die to see who would take hold of that one? That one that was probably looking for greener pastors and wanting to be showing its stuff. But what we know is the Lord had preordained this. This wasn't a time of happenstance. And that's what's important is that they weren't dispatched on simply a win. And it wasn't, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. You go there and you ask and you will receive. And by the way, that's a good thing to remember that what you ask of the Lord, you shall receive for his purposes. It always has to be for his purposes. It always has to translate into what the Lord wants as a revelation. And it's always about him. We are the beneficiaries. There's no doubt about that. We've all received many times over that which we could not afford, that which we did not deserve. But this is about him. And whenever something is about him, you can rest assured that as you were on dispatch, he will make that certain to be fulfilled. Couples, that's about him, if you're biblical. Singularly devoted, that's about him too, John was. Whatever that brings the Lord glory, and it's about him, becomes you. They obediently follow what it is they were asked to do. And the closing word here, which I'm leaving on this, is that if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of, plural, them. The Lord has need of them. We don't know what the inflection was, but I do not believe that it would be. You get in their face and you tell them, the Lord has need of them. Come and deared. Because all the Lord ever has to do is ask, and all we ever have to do is ask in his name. Disposition sometimes gets in the way. That's why the Lord is very good about changing our disposition. How does he do that? By changing our position. We move from highly exalted to lowly as he would. We move from a plane of vertical strength to humility on the horizontal. We learn to fall on our knees. We learn to say, not my will, but thine be done. And the reason that the disciples really are a good picture of us is because for the years that they traveled with him, they didn't fully operate really consistently. Have you found yourself operating super consistently from the time that Jesus, no, nor have I. In other words, we're all a conglomeration of inconsistent disciples but that doesn't stop what the Lord did. He chose them. They could have just been previously having an argument, or they may be those who come back and say, okay, we've got some things. That we don't know which ones they are right now. We know that two are going to be clamoring for a place in God's kingdom, and they're going to have a mother that wants to see that that's done. Salome's going to say, I got my two boys here. Let's talk about politics. In the kingdom. We don't know. But what we do see in the inconsistencies are acts of obedience. 
that brings together what the Lord is about to enter into, which is a triumphal entry. It's always about, can we give the Lord a triumphal entry here? I may be a bumbling fool, but can I do the one thing that the Lord has dispatched me to do, that his triumphal entry into that situation, into that life, that circumstance might be reckoned, even though I may be laughed at, can it be done? And they show that it can be done them. They're given the words to say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. When the Lord has need of them, immediately he will send them. Whatever it is that's on your list to do for God, he'll see that it's satisfied because he's orchestrating it. It's not happenstance, and you're not going to believe it until you believe before it happens. Good word for us. All this was done that it might be fulfilled in which was spoken by the prophet. Notice this as a repeat line. We just read it. He's quoting what happened 533 years before, pen to paper, pen to papyrus, whatever it may have been, pen to lambskin, whatever it may have been. He is reciting what we just read 533 years earlier. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we know the mom and the foal of this donkey are going together. It speaks of unity. It speaks of, I think as well, sensitivity. He could have been giving them a cue word that whispered in that little under four-year-old foal would have just perked up his ears and could have even been singing the hallelujah chorus on the way there. But what he was showing is that he's not one that divides that which naturally is to be together. For spiritual purposes, he's not about division. You may say, well, how do you get that? It's a picture. It could be formatted in another way. He could have exclusively said, that's the one I want, the one that's never been touched. But he says, I want the one that has been touched by the mother's heart, and I want them brought in. It's going to be better for that male beast that wants to bolt. I will have everything under control once they are presented to me. The Lord controls everything. One of the words in the lyrics today was the eminence. He is eminent. But Colossians tells us he's even superior to eminent. He's preeminent. He's above all. He is not equal to any. He is everyone's unequal. He equals us, though, by his preeminence, by our pairings. And I just think it's special. There will be a focus on one, but it's them that come. And the Lord still works that beautiful way in coupling and not division. Division happens. It's not to happen. There's a purpose. There's a strength in two. And notice this. They're likened to one another. Go get the donkey. And by the way, it's paired with an ox. Bring that guy too in case we have to plow this field. Move through the crowds. There's going to be tension, boys. I want the tanks. Bring the ox. The one that has the horns yet. He doesn't because that would be contrary to the nature of the Lord. Move if you would now. And I would like to go to uh, Luke 19. We'll pick it up there. In verse 28. And so let me say this to compress this event on Palm Sunday. Massive people, the Romans are on high alert because whenever there's a massive people, what they are as a force is politically engaged to suppress. They have had bouts of rebellion. They have been put, obviously, in a position of correcting socially and militarily those who were known as zealots. There is one currently that is in prison in the bowels of a very difficult place to have to stay. His name is Barabbas. Barabbas is a zealot. He was one that stirred up political unrest to take on Rome, and he killed people in the process. He has been on trial 
He has been found guilty and he is assigned to die. Jesus is aware of what will be a picture of a substitutionary death. For as you understand the story, Barabbas will be set free. Jesus would be assigned his guilt. And then he would be placed in the center between two thieves. It's a beautiful picture of what God truly did, was doing, and was not going to relinquish to just anybody to take his spot. The anybody was his body. His body had to be given as a sacrifice for us. Everything calculated. Everything according to God's plan to the day, the hour. The precise directives that were given. The language that would be uttered by the people as he moved in this procession, a parade of celebration. So what was I saying about the events going on? The feast weeks are pretty much lined up back to back, designated by days. And the feast that is probably now set in motion, anticipating the one that is on the conclusion of this week, would be the Feast of Tabernacles or of Booths. It was the picture that God gave to the children of Israel that was to be instituted under Moses in which deliverance from the world system, Egypt, was celebrated on a camping trip with God. Why do you think the RV industry is so popular? Even it speaks of the fact that everybody wants to escape Egypt for at least a week. We're so tired of being beat up in the system. And even though we make money from it, we want to invest in a camp out. And by the way, some of the very best campouts you can ever go on, and if I, even as a pastor, would be able to say affirmatively, invite God to go in your camp out, and it'll go far better than anything you planned. Because you'll see him with you. You'll say, this is a feast of booths. And thanks for the RV, Lord. Thanks for the tent. Thanks for the station wagon. Thanks for my mat that I can lie out beneath the stars. We see that when we go to our campouts. When I'm going there, it's not simply to give the church a relief for a camp out. It's actually to invite you to camp out, to tabernacle with God. And we see him. Because God knew the way that boats operate on the lake, <laughs> he saved my boat from being welcomed into Davy Jones's locker. This is what he would be moving into the closure of one feast backed by another feast, which would be speaking of him. Actually, they all three do. For Mary and Joseph were told by Gabriel, and you shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. So they're celebrating in pilgrimage God with us as a moment of tenting. And I'm so glad that we have tents that pop up quick, RVs that roll smoothly. But the idea there that I'm trying to translate to you is it's, an, it's a desire of the man, of the woman, of the family to be doing something that's special and different. But I'm also telling you, it should be highly spiritual, highly spiritual. And it's, it's interesting because we end up camping along people that are not highly spiritual. They turn at times our campgrounds into just carnal hedonism. And we go, what in the world is that? Christy and I, when I came out of Mexico, were marrying uh, a couple. And it was a very quiet lake. And we took the McCord uh, exit. So at any rate, Northern California, Seven Rivers or Silver Falls or something. I don't remember what it was called. But we were camping there, preparing for the wedding, which was going to be in that area. And about at 12 o'clock at night, there was a hoot that began on the other side of the lake. And it moved in succession circularly all around the lake. There were college people on this particular weekend that I was doing a wedding that were partying in the forested areas. And so on signal, all of a sudden, this just whelp just came up. I mean, it was like coyotes howling at the moon, only it was all of thousands. They must have been thousands of them. And it circled. And then there would be another signal, and it circled being louder. And they would try to make it louder in the next one. 
that was a camping trip that I would probably say was godless. But I talked to God about it. <laughs> Such as, can you send coyotes and lions and bears like right now, Lord? That'd be awesome. So the next feast, though, that Jesus will ultimately be celebrating with his disciples is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover. This is what Jesus would be to them alive on the scene. When it was instituted by Moses, it was to be a sign saying the only way you're getting delivered from this is by acknowledging the blood on the lintels of your doorposts. In the fashion of a cross, they painted lamb's blood from a basin that was below to the top and to the cross. It formed a cross. And it was a picture of what ultimately this day itself would begin to represent towards the close of the week. But the other feast that would come on the backside of this, as Jesus would be placed in the earth, was the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus just said in the previous script, but he shall arise. He shall arise. All of these events compressed to the time of the triumphal entry to give credence and substantiate that what God had said would be performed will flawlessly be performed. And that's the beauty of what these particular feasts represent in this week. In Luke 19, Jesus entered... And it says that he passed through Jericho. That sets the stage as to where actually he's come from. But in the 28th verse, which is the beginning of the triumphal entry, it says, he had said he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage, and to Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, saying, and this is repetitive. It's simply without that one detail. They were to go and get, if you would, a ride for him. The thing to put to rest is why would he choose these? And what you need to know is that in Jewish history, for a king or a prince to ride in, they wouldn't choose the normative of culture, which was a stallion or a chariot. They actually, in humility, but with great dignity rode on what would be a donkey. And so he's staying precise to the history of his people, which also is laughable to the Romans. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hoot. That's what it would do. It would incite mockery from the Romans who would say, this guy? Fear him? I don't think so. They would have been familiar with, obviously, the Caesars. They would have been familiar with military stratagem, which was to invoke and provoke fear. Jesus comes in preparatory to this for the purpose of demonstrating humility, lowly, on a donkey. They go. We've already discussed that, but let's pick it up here. And that's at this point. Verse 35. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. Where's the mom? There are two implications of thought. Is that the mom and the foal are hip to hip. And he's actually in a straddling or reclining position on both of them. That the young one is actually in a state of maturity. The other implication is that the mother has brought comfort to this foal and is simply walking along with the foal. We see illustratively that it's a big donkey, but it would indicate that this is actually an unridden donkey. So mother donkey would have already, that's be called the jill, 
already broken. This was an unbroken animal. And the reason that that's important is because this shows the Lord's control over the natural realm. Anybody else would have tried it, even a disciple, perhaps even in Jesus' name, would have been bucked off. He has control over the situation. He knows exactly what he's doing. But let's conclude here and find out how this procession works. Clothes are coming off the people that are understanding this is a huge pageant. It's a procession that is very significant spiritually. They're removing their garments in honor of the Lord. And that is a picture as well as what we do. We remove our garments of the world as the Lord moves us into a procession for him. It's a picture. It's a spiritual picture. He's robed us in his righteousness. We remove the garments of our worldliness. As they do this, there's also the spreading of the clothes on the road. He's drawing near now the descent of the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice, praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, by the way, that's important in this procession, that they're praising God for all the mighty works that they have seen. You've seen mighty works. The Lord would say, could you obligate yourself to acknowledge mighty works in your big day? Wherever you're at, acknowledge the mighty works that you've seen of me. The familiar, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're reciting both what was sung by angelic majesty on the day that he was born. And they are singing, if you would, even arranging or rearranging the lyrics to what Zechariah proclaimed. They're capturing both the beginning and the finale. Zechariah declares prophetically the finale. In the beginnings of the gospel, we see that the angels were proclaiming the start. It's all compressed here. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And he says in this statement, As I have command over that which would have bucked you off, kicked you in the teeth. I have command even to silence these rocks whose inclination is to sing in my entry. He's literally saying, I'm actually subduing these rocks that are lifeless, inanimate to you, but they would sing out for my cause. He holds all things together, zips the lips of those things that ought not yet be heard from. He realizes that in order to release these rocks to sing, there would be a stone that would also have to sing. He chose to go to the grave, according to tradition, and to once again make nothing much of himself, for he did all that was essential in the Father making much of him as a sacrifice. We are the ones called to make much of the Lord. And we're the ones that are to point out all of creation, all inanimate objects created by him for his pleasure and for us as beneficiaries to say, have you ever seen a star shine like that? Have you ever seen the patterns of the constellation? Do you know that the constellations are not about zodiac? They're about the gospel account hidden in the stars. If you didn't know that, you can find a text from a Christian author whose passion was the stars. And what man turned to be the signs of the zodiac are actually the scriptures that are foretold in the constellations. It's pretty fascinating. And it says this in verse 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He says prophetically what was open for you to see radically. Your eyes are now going to be veiled and you'll see nothing. 
And the things that you hear, you will not be able to assimilate because you're blind. And not only now are you blind, you will be deaf. But the things that will happen to you will be calamitous. He's crying, weeping for their ignorance that should have been as obvious in the three years of his tenure as anything that you and I obviously believe in him now. So their eyes are still closed. The consequence of this decision would render them without a homeland, scatter them to the four corners of the earth, and he weeps knowing that this, by their choice, is their consequence. The Lord understands the consequence of what happens when he is rejected. The Lord understands the consequence of a people, of a nation, when they have chosen to behave godlessly and they've rejected God purposefully. We are at that particular point in our history. When Zechariah was written 500 years in advance of Jesus's arrival, we've only made it to what, 235 years celebrating our Declaration of Independence. And maybe it should be retitled our Declaration of Dependence on God. Maybe it's time to simply say, gonna rewrite that title. It was so good, so pure. It was evident that God was in it when it was written, but boy, we've done a pretty good job of dismissing it. The Declaration of Dependence upon God and no one else, no other nation, no other plan, no other political group, but God and God alone. The triumphal entry is an historic event. Its implications are very profound. We've only surface scratched most of it, but I'm hoping that at least some of the things that have been perhaps reintroduced to you or maybe have a fresh awakening in you can inspire us on what is our triumphal entry into the situations that God has ordained us to walk in. There is a picture, but I will tell you that for every triumphal entry that God gives you, there's a trial of misery that follows, and you need to be honest with those who coming out of the world system wanting to come into the spiritual reality of living a life contrary to where they once were at. It comes with a cost. There is a trial of misery. We are not greater than our teacher. We follow in the ways of our teacher. We are servants. We are not masters. He is our master. We serve him. But good news for all of those who entering into a trial of misery after a triumphal entry and a decision to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is this. There's a resurrection day coming. Jesus was emphatic on that. They only heard the other parts. You're, what? It's going to be bad for us? But on the third day, there's your third day. Your third day means that you come out of that dark tomb, that place that somebody buried you, that the enemy wanted you to rot in. There's your third day. By the way, that's a great band. You can listen to them. <laughs> 